This is Simon Transparently Awakening the heart of humanity As we see beyond the lies And open our eyes to realize This is our time to rise So welcome everybody to another Simon Transparently This is a new podcast series that I've put together Where I want to dive in transparently With a, a host of magnificent people that inspire me around the world And covering some specific topics this time As opposed to being uh, necessarily so open and broad And one of those topics that I really want to explore is men's work Men's work, supporting men um, being there in community with brotherhood. And I spoke to this wonderful man who you're about to uh, be introduced to called Ian McKenzie many years ago on my previous platform called Simon on the Sofa. And Ian has been an inspiration to me as a man, as a being, as a, as I would say, an integrated um, pioneer of a new age, if you want. And that's going to be my little definition of Ian today. And so... Um, when I started this series, I was like, oh, who do I really want to speak to this time? And Ian was definitely on my, on my list and very much at the top. So welcome, Ian, to this podcast, mm. Ian McKenzie. Mm. Happy to be here, Simon. Yeah, so happy to have you. Thank you for taking some time out of your schedule. And I'm going to dive straight in as we do because uh, there, you know, there will be links under here for how people can explore more about you as mm. always. And I share your work with much of my community but for those that don't know you, I just want to dive straight in and, and just give you a space just to, just to share how you're feeling today. I know you've just been uh, uh, transitioning from being with your son, which you know, you know your son, you're now a father. Right? That's a whole thing I want to mm-hmm. talk about today. Um, when mm-hmm. we met you, you were not a father initially. So you've just transitioned from your son. And how are you feeling in this moment? What's, uh, what's alive in you? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Mm, yeah. <laughs> One of the things I learned from other fathers uh, that, you know, they said it before my son, his name is Oren, before he was born, they said generally a sense of after this threshold, your life is no longer your own. And, you know, it sounds very foreboding. (laughs) And at the same time, um, in some ways, like a a gift, like, but, you know, it's hard to see at the time even because it's, you know, you're not, it's hard to explain something before someone's crossed the threshold. Mm. And what I'm now coming to understand is that's very true, that, you know, when you have care of a being, you know, now uh, in your orbit, it's like your life fundamentally changes. I mean, the orientation is just so different. And in particular, our son now is uh, 19 months. And also, um, he's basically like the god of entropy that is in our midst, um, constantly like reshuffling, you know, picking up, throwing around, exploring. Um, to a level which is, you know, like it's a profound teaching actually constantly, you know, to be to be humbled um, by this little little being. So, yeah, it's definitely something I'm still, f- you know, f- figuring it out. Like uh, certainly, I mean, it's first time, you know, with the young child, and it's. Um, I've mean, also heard fatherhood comes on a bit later, you know, for the mother, the child, you know, has grown in her womb and they're born, and there's an intimacy that's already there often. Uh, whereas fatherhood, you know, it kind of like yeah, it has to grow um, like a like a like a plant, you know, itself. And that's certainly been the case, too. I feel, you know, the more time we've spent together that I'm discovering actually what it means to be a father. Mm. Yeah, beautiful. I have mm. a, uh, a you could say I have a, a daughter, stepdaughter, a daughter. Uh, mm. My partner has uh, when I met her, she had a, a beautiful uh, daughter uh, who was well, just one just over one year. And so mm. uh, we've been together for. Uh, nearly seven years so I've been a, you know a, um, 
I, I, it's hard. It's sometimes far, difficult for me to say I've been a father, but I have been a father to her. But I've been more of a guardian, more of a friend, right? It's been because her father's still around, and and she sees her father fifty sort of 50% of the time. So I've sort of been this, you know, substitute support uh, co-parent. Mm. And so mm -hmm. I can totally relate. One thing I can relate with is what you just said is that how it, how you go through these phases of relating with them as well. And they're so uh, changing constantly that I haven't actually known how to adapt and change to, to her changes mm. throughout my period. So I can, I can relate mm. uh, a little mm. uh, to that. Uh, what, what's um, popping up for me instantly, Ian, is I spoke to somebody the other day and I'd love to hear a little of your words on that. It's that they said to me, wow, um, I decided not to have children because of the state of the world, right? That was, uh, mm -hmm. that was uh, her initial answer. And I'd like, I sat into that knowing that, you know, I have a little seven-year-old with me. And I don't know, I'd just love to hear a few words on that. That was just alive in me in this moment, like how it feels right now with the world. And I know you are such a big picture thinker and, and, bring in, and bring in this, you know, this little divine being into the space right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. It's, a, it is, it's an interesting question. And it's someone I thought a lot about um, because, you know, prior to this, I really did feel I was probably in the same camp this kind of like really lack of, you know, uh, certainty that it was a good idea, you know, to, to bring a child in. And, you know, what comes to me now is a um, number of years ago, uh, I was speaking with my grandmother who, I mean, now she's in her, I think early 90s. Um, but uh, it was a particular moment, you know, the family was gathering. And I, I mean, I think she had glanced the news at the time. And she said something offhand to me. It, it was, um, you know, the world's crazy in the way she said it um but then she's irish so she had this little extra you know uh, uh addition where she said well maybe it's always been crazy mm. you know and that's what sticks with me now is the sense that you know on the one hand certainly the way that that we look out at the world it just seems that the the level of mayhem is you know at a fever pitch and i mean certainly coronavirus is un unprecedented right that's the word everybody uses exactly um you know and you know at the same time um, depending on where you are in the world, I mean, the world is ending, it has ended already and been rebuilt. And, you know, many times over that this idea that everybody's experiencing the world all the same at the same time, you know, is also a kind of like, I don't know, on, generally it's a colonized understanding of the world, right? That, that others, other people could have different experiences. And I just say that to say that um, this idea of what, what is the, I don't know, point of humans in the world? Right. Like it kind of goes back to that question, because if somebody's trying to weigh the math, right, of, well, you know, is it worth bringing a child in because of, you know, the, the world they might be born into and also the consequence on the world? You know, if we're talking about the number of diapers, you know, and just whatever, all of the everything it takes to raise a being. If you're doing the math that basically says less humans is better. Right. Then you kind of there's nothing you can really say. Like there's no. There's no real reason if you just if you're looking at it from a purely mathematical perspective about why you should, you know, because generally it's stacked against you. So that being said, you kind of have to find a different reason in a sense. Right. Why? And for me, you know, to be honest, um, it was uh, actually tapping into and being in the presence of uh, indigenous cultures. You know, in Vancouver, where I've, um, I grew up. Uh, at the time, actually, when we were contemplating the pregnancy, um, as in continuing and, and to, to bring this child in, that um, I ended up at a rally uh, in Vancouver. It was actually um, against one of the you know, major pipelines that was being built. And um, a number of the indigenous activists were there. Um, also, 
uh, with their children and the you know grandparents and there was such an intergenerational presence that i experienced which is not the first time but it really hit me then that i really had the sense almost of like is is opting out of children like the thing that life most wants of us do you know what i mean like is yes. that is that what serves life kind of like opting out in a way because in the indigenous understanding it's like participation in the intergenerational you know caravan which is you know life and and the human i don't know ability to to be a part of it is it's like something else you know so it's not it's not a kind of weighing the calamity kind of equation for that understanding at least that's what i think right. it's actually more about what does life want of us and, and how can we best serve it mm. therefore and at the same time you know i'm not also advocating that therefore everybody needs kids you know or everybody needs a lot of kids like i i still think that you know we'd really obviously weigh the time and maybe in the past it, you know my my parents generation they had eight kids right in wow. their irish family wow. uh and and you know i would very it'd be very hard for me to agree that anybody could make the case for that now that kind of thing um, and at the same time, the opt out, like, I just, I wonder where it comes from, you know, when people that have that sense of like, I don't want to participate. And I understand the the feeling totally. Yeah. And I just maybe wondered as well. And it was like that for me is like, what what is it about having a child that actually in a way bound me to a level of discernment with, with what really matters now? Mm. You know, because when I didn't have a child, I could, you know, I could kind of go anywhere. I was relatively, you know, quote free, um, do, do what I wanted or, or kind of participate in edge work here and there and all that. And ultimately at the same time, it really comes down to, you know, what works for families. Like that, that became my sort of discernment, you know, because I don't have as much time anymore, uh, often exhausted, you know, all the thing. So it really became, yeah, what's worth doing. And so in that sense, it really became a helpful barometer right. actually for me. Right. Wow, as I hear you saying what's worth doing and that you're a limited time. And then I see how you continue to content create and 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 mm. and share and i see actually and maybe this is because bringing your son into the space there's that sense of maybe more focus more more clarity yeah. on what, what needs to be done and what what takes priority and actually mm. that's also supporting your ability to generate i don't know if you want to share a few words on that has that has that happened mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah 100 percent. you know like I really, I, this question to me too, though, is, has become the central question, not just because of coronavirus, but, yeah. you know, it, re it really took even a more, like, acute um, presence in my life when it was last year, actually, in the spring, there's this really powerful piece written by um, an author uh, named Catherine Ingram, um, but it was called Facing Extinction, which is a, an essay you can find online, you know, made the rounds. It's very beautifully done. You know, there's, she was friends with Leonard Cohen, you know, quotes him a few times, like, it's a really beautiful crafted piece. Um, but really what she's saying is, um, you know, by most measures, you know, we're, we're in for a real ride, you know, and many are already, you know, certainly that's what I mean by lots of places are in different, you know, collapse and regeneration and all this stuff. But largely this, the m modern nations, you know, we're really in for a ride. And, you know, this is pre-coronavirus. And so um, I've really been with this question, which is kind of like, it's 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 a mature i feel it is a mature question to be asking which is you know um a, an adolescent would say i can do anything mm. or or maybe another way to say it i can do everything right like yeah, like this idea that you can be anybody and you can do anything you know it's kind of built into i don't know maybe the american way and anyway modernity maybe but i would say a mature 
um, wondering about that is to say, well, maybe I can do almost anything, but I can't do everything. Mm. You know, it's like rooting somewhere means you, you can't be everywhere. Like you really have to be able to make that choice, right? And I do see a lot of the kind of wandering global nomad culture of which I myself, you know, largely felt a part of, um, you know, at the peak maybe a decade ago, that there is this sense of, um, you know, a kind of liquid borderless, you know, be anywhere, part of this global tribe. And it's like awesome, you know, on the one hand. And there is a consequence that these people face too often is that, you know, if you're from everywhere, you're really from nowhere. Do you know, like it really takes the, the willingness to be somewhere for a certain degree of time to like really grow roots and to build real relationship, relationship in place. And, and I, think I think coronavirus has just made that really obvious. obvious. You know, like so many people are discovering their neighbors actually for the first time probably ever. Right. Like I have a friend in San Francisco who, you know, the guy across the hall, like they'd never talked, you know, in like 10 years. Mm -hmm. And now with coronavirus, it's like, oh, hey, what, what's your name again? Yeah. Um, you know what I mean? So it's kind of like this bizarre insanity is kind of lifting in a way. And, and actually a, cl a clarity and a, and a discernment is actually arising ironically because suddenly we can't be everywhere mm. or like maybe those with the privilege that can be like moving around a lot suddenly have to be somewhere. And you know, that really asks questions too of, so where do you want to be and with who do you want to be with? Right. You know, who do you want to dig in with? Because you know, you can't have deep relationships with everybody. You know, mm. that's, that's sort of a truism of, of real village culture. You know, I think there's that study done, I don't know, um, a while ago, but it said like 150, maybe, you know, kind of maximum amount of, you know, kind of real relationship you can have with people. And then otherwise it, it becomes, you, you know, you can't remember their details and faces and things. And so with Facebook and the rest, you know, we have a kind of pseudo ambient awareness of a lot of people, which, which I treasure and I appreciate, you know, but at the same time, it doesn't replace like deep relationships with even, you know, 30 people. Like that would be so soul nourishing for so many and the many don't have that uh, even in their lives. Right. Mm, that's a really great point <clears throat> that you bring up. Mm. Mm. It's so much flying through my uh, thought processes right now of, mm. of just because, so for, to give you an example, I'm just gonna share them out because and then we can see sure. what, what sparks for you. So there's something from following your work and <clears throat> And you, you really actually being uh, Charles Eisenstein, a huge inspiration, but you really being an inspiration of this more beautiful world our hearts know is possible, this sort of mm. new, this new, new paradigm merging of, of community, of um, awareness around resources, awareness around what's going on in the world. The, the way you dive into uh, topics, and I'm, I'm going to use, for example, death, with um, you know mm. some uh, something I was inspired by you again it sort of led me towards Stephen Jenkinson <coughs> mm -hmm. and orphan wisdom mm -hmm. and I know you've uh, shared some time with Stephen and and filmed him and I, I believe been on some of his uh, 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 retreats etc I'd love to hear a little bit of mm -hmm. that and and and, and mm -hmm. as you're talking now about what you described about what the coronavirus is maybe bringing up in this sense of coming back to the village coming back to community and <clears throat> and through my research and exploration over the last sort of 10 years as well is I've heard this narrative of you know becoming more local and permaculture mm -hmm. passion and like around permaculture coming back into the soil and, and, and connecting to the land and and and, <clears throat> and then and then how we can claim our sort of more sovereignty through that 
Um, and then I'm just right. I'm just going off here. With this, mm-hmm. is, and then sort of like the way that you've gone now into well, you went into the feminine aspect, and then you've gone into the masculine exploration with the mythic uh, masculine podcast that you're doing. And then mm-hmm. I just want to dive in with the film you made, and I've just bought this book. I've oh, been gifted this book. Oh, nice. Um, yeah, from Tamira. Right, yeah. from Tamira. And you've done a whole thing in that, which is about community and village. So I don't know. That's what's alive in me at the moment. And mm. I don't know what's sparking inside you, but I know there's, there's, such, yeah. a, there's such a rich amount of exploration of the, of, of the human culture right there that, you, that you've dived into mm. and inspired me to. And, and I think even mm. as I say that, I'm tingling. So I'd like, I mean, what comes mm. up for you around that? Because it sort of leads into... Yeah, I don't know. That's what's alive in me. (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate that. I I appreciate your, uh, yeah, the the passion around that too. Right. Um, You know, I could try to draw a thread between these pieces because for for me, they definitely link up. You know, it's not sort of a a random assortment of just like, hey, that sounds interesting. I get that. Um, Yeah. And and I'd say, you know, okay, taking it right back to, let's say maybe Charles, when I first came across his work back in, I think it was 2012. And I read his book, Ascent of Humanity, which really went to the core, right, of what are the two stories that govern modern civilization. And um, they really kind of uncovered the story of separation, right? It's like the story of separation of which, you know, is enforced in so many ways in the culture as it is. You're just separate being in a kind of random universe. And, you know, ultimately, if you, you can try to be a good person, but it really doesn't matter because there's nothing afterward. And, you know, you try to get what you can while you can. Now, that's kind of cynical nature but that's really what the culture um you know the kind of modern rational intellectual culture really enforces mm. now the other is the story of ascent right which is the idea that humans are you know, we started at as cavemen primitive and we're on our ascent you know all the way up through the stars you know to mars and beyond as lords and masters of of everything right and he's saying that those two stories are what the water that most of us are swimming in right so we can't really see you can't see it unless you can step outside of it or maybe yeah you have an experience that really shatters that paradigm for you and on the other side of that is what he's been speaking to for a number of years this idea of the more beautiful world um story of interbeing and again he's not inventing these he's just naming them right as uh, other other cultures live this way still thankfully and um at the same time we're in this moment where much of the world has got swept up in in globalization and modernity and this you know globalized capitalist system and so yeah it's not it's not um it's different than i think has ever been seen on planet earth and so from there you know i really got into the sense of like whoa you know the curtain got pulled back maybe like for many and then he wrote sacred economics right which to me i realized that so much of my lens of looking at human culture and in humans was colored by behaviors which seemed innate to humans but actually they're enforced by the economic system as it is. So again, this idea that with like greed, if, if anybody talks about greed as a, as a kind of tr- you know, innate trait of humans, which it's, you know, it's often is spoken like that, like humans, what are you gonna do? They're just greedy uh, or they're just you know, terrible, you know, whatever, all this kind of <laughs> Right, they're just consuming stuff, everything. Right? Yeah, and yes. it's, on the one hand, you could say that and be like, well, it looks like to be the case, so that maybe that is true, but it's actually because the current economic system enforces greed. Mm. right it enforces scarcity so all of those behaviors are incentivized within our current paradigm and if we were in a different economic paradigm certain qualities of humans such as generosity the gift all of that also you know become enforced or they they're um, valued and so that naturally creates those behaviors and so again unless but if you're stuck in the current paradigm you can't see it right so all you see is terrible humans and you know what are you gonna do about it 
So for me, sacred economics kind of cracked that door. And then I started to realize too that, you know, this, this kind of threshold of death or death phobia was so rampant, you know, mm-hmm. in, in my own life and how I was very much like um, un, unable or unwilling to really, you know, be in the presence of it, uh, which I know, again, I trust the kind of synchronistic nature of the universe, but it was led, it led me to Steven. And I had a friend who was in a school and she was kind of like, you got to meet this guy. I don't really know what he's, you know, I don't know how to explain what he talks about, but you should go. <laughs> Perfect and, uh, introduction. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So I was, I was in, um, and that was 2012 actually. Uh, and oh, you met him in, twi- you met Steven in 2012 as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's big year. Yeah. <laughs> they say, uh, and I ended up going, uh, after our first meeting, um, I went to his school. And so I've been in the school, Orphan Wisdom School, f- since then. And that's, I guess, what, seven years now. So quite a bit of time. And um, to very you know, broadly sum up st- what Stephen has been speaking to is that he, again, sees death phobia uh, as a symptom. And that symptom is uh, essentially the loss of real culture. So, you know, not every culture in the world thinks that death is oblivion, you know, is nothingness. And even if those people that have a religious background and, you know, are kind of like, what, what do you mean there's an afterlife and all the rest? He saw time and time again, as he was many years in palliative care, that it didn't really matter what a lot of people, quote, thought they believed, you know, and even the ones that are like, you know, I'm cool with it. Uh, you know, I just as long as it's quick or whatever, you know, I'm, I'm good. But as as people got close to that threshold again and again, he saw this like rampant terror uh, show up. And that was beyond people's, you know, their as soon as they got close, it was like what they really felt, you know, kind of came out. And um, he started to see that again as a, as a cultural failure. So, you know, I'm swimming, you know, upstream and I feel in this sense of also following that understanding. So like what happened to culture? Why don't we have culture anymore? Or could we understand the dominant culture as a, not really a culture, but a coping strategy for the absence of culture? Wow. That's a much more, yeah, yeah. it's a much more kind of achieved, you know, understanding. And again, none of this is like cynical, like, yeah, ter- you know, it's not judging people or for being terrible, any of that. It's actually being willing to wonder differently right. about so many of these things. So I got really curious, right, um, around this idea of, well, what is real culture? And like, well, what is village, right? Is it just a bunch of people living together or is there some other kind of intelligence at work? And Stephen would say that true village is an achievement, right? It's not just people hanging out and, you know, you know sh- borrowing sugar from each other or whatever. Yeah. Um, and so that led me to, alongside my own personal um, heartbreak with my marriage ended, um, and largely because of it couldn't hold this, um, I don't know, expanded, uh, I don't know, I d- or expanded longing I had to actually explore new paradigms, different paradigms in love and partnership. And it was too much for my partner at the time, you know, and, and I understand it's, it's really edgy to step off, you know, to the edge of what we think is normal and the rest. And exactly. through that heartbreak, yeah, that heartbreak led me to Tamara, of course, a community in Portugal that has been researching for 40 years all of these elements of love and sexuality and village and partnership. So again, like all of these things are kind of following the same thread um, for me. You know, I'm just kind of like, again, pulling, like kind of like asking the question, like what happened? Like how did things actually get as they are? Right. Because none of it is, none of it is random and none of it is sort of just inevitable, but like real things happen, Right. you know? And, and so for me, yeah, my work has really been, I guess that is just kind of like, I don't know, scouting ahead or, you know, often I, I feel a bit of a kind of like an eagle, you know, yeah. going across to the depths exactly. and, and then coming back 
yeah, just saying like, yo, look what I found. Yes. This is like yeah, you're amazing. Like, you're like an explorer for me. Like you've opened my mind through your videos as well. I mean, we don't yeah. have to go into it today, but just to throw for people listening, like Ian sort of stumbled into filmmaking, I would say as well, right? It was uh, mm-hmm. like, you know, yeah. you, it, wasn't, it wasn't the initial. Um, in fact, just say, because you, you, you did a competition, did you? A random competition uh, for a video that then was successful. Oh. Isn't that how you got into filmmaking and then you went and started making well, short movies? Well, it was actually yeah, a friend who did, he, he initially did a job project where he worked one job a week for a year. Right. And like he, so he was like, hey, come on and like film, let's film this adventure. And then that was the initial one. Yeah. yeah. And then I, from there, I, I won another contest for a short kind of inspirational piece. And it just became a thing like, oh, maybe I could do this. Yeah. And then, you know, here we are. So. I, and I love that. And, and again, I want to really inspire, uh, encourage people to go and watch the, the movies. I mean, I don't know how many times I've watched some of your short movies. I mean, The Meaning of Death mm. with Stephen Jacobson and, um, uh, you know, Sacred Economics and uh, Occupy Love. I mean, the, they, mm. they for me were real. Yeah, your, your ability to, to question. And I, what I love about you so much, Ian, is that, that you question, or in my opinion, you question with a real inquisitive innocent almost open mind of exploration i never i've never felt from you that you're saying this is how it is this is how it is you're saying look like you just described hey i'm i'm found in this and i know that you've even um you've explored uh, burning man right as well many times yeah. which i guess yeah. you, how i've seen you exploring that again is not just a sort of hedonistic dive maybe that has been your exploration too but the way you've captured video is like oh, okay this is again an exploration into culture into into mm. Uh, yeah village community um mm-hmm. and just mm-hmm. I, I think moving on maybe from what you said un- unless there's anything that sparks that you feel you want to share but i, I really love how you merged yeah this exploration of sexuality into real culture and i'd love to hear what you uncovered or are or you are still uncovering around mm. the deeper wounds of sexuality and how that is actually influencing our cultures and society. Because when I'm reading this book and my own exploration into uh, self-love, self-pleasure, and realizing the, the depth of shame, guilt, and violence mm. associated to our sexuality, and then that how that's also created so much uh, separation, which of course, going back to Charles Eisenstein, so much... Mm-hmm. Um, uh, let's say disconnection from the love of the mother and the father that I speak for myself that I know I didn't get and I'm noticing that many other of the, of the men that I've met along the path and women have not had so I don't know if that mm-hmm. what that sparks yeah. yeah yeah a lot in there um, <laughs> unpack that <laughs> yeah yeah no I'm happy to I mean this is what's so fascinating is that like I really feel this relationship of this I mean maybe whole on is one word that you know like wherever you look within this ecosystem and, and the, the places I've explored, like I find the same things. And, and by that just meaning I'm looking at the same calamity or crater, you could say, but from a different angle. And so the whole thing around love and sexuality, um, the, like the wounds that are carried and how that translates, how that's passed down through the, you know, the parental line, for example, for me is directly related to the absence of village. Mm. And by that meaning that nuclear families are, I mean, they're, they're kind of like the collapse of village. Like, even if you have that, right, that's actually more rare these days, even to have a somewhat stable nuclear family. Um, but that's not a very good system or good structure in order to, like, raise health, health, healthy, happy children. Because what happens is parents 
um, like many are finding and you know I'm finding we I, thankfully I live in a collective home and still I mean it's the it's beyond how challenging um, I, I thought it would be <laughs> and so many parents struggle because they think that they're supposed to be everything to their kid right and the, also the consequences they feel well I don't want to pass on my particular you know craziness to my kid right and so they could probably go about trying to like not pass it on but what happens is they'll just pass on them trying not to pass it on mm. does that make sense <laughs> right because I, yeah, 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 so yeah they will pass on yeah not trying yeah exactly yeah yeah so they're you know in that, I mean? that yeah yeah totally yeah and so so the, then the question for me comes well how do parents mitigate their inevitable passing on of their own you know unprocessed wounds and trauma and all that stuff and for me it's to surround themselves with other trusted adults mm. because that's what's going to call them out on whatever you know unconscious shadow craziness that they have um, because the kids should not be the ones to do it for one and often you know that that is all that kids can do sometimes and of course parents don't tend to listen or blame them or whatever it is you know all sorts of mayhem um, but two that uh, the the kids get a lot of other adult figures in their lives that have different kinds of you know qualities like leadership different kinds of love and compassion different kinds of wisdom Right. And so they don't project on their own parents uh, ideas of perfection. Right. Because they know, oh, yeah, my parents, they're just humans, you know, and I see them. This happens at Tamara. Like all of the parents are in parent school. You know, they're working on their stuff. The kids get to, in a way, be in the presence of like some of that, but they don't have to carry it. Like that's such a distinction in this culture, right? Where often, you know, parents unconsciously, again, load their baggage or their emotional, you know, um, stuff on their kids right. uh, even though they don't want to but it because they're often alone in it right so that i mean that's that's one thread the second thing around sexuality and particularly around say men and women is you know modern culture by and large is thinks it's sexually liberated right right but it what took me going to a community like tamara who have been researching love and sexuality and creating structures of how to live in a way that um like supports whatever expression of love and partnership that one desires so for example there's no it's a it's a quote free love community but that's often misunderstood right it would be better understood to say it's a it's a community dedicated to truth and love mm. so what that means is that whatever it is that's true for you you know for some it might be to have many lovers but for others it might be to have a partner and for others it might be celibacy like all those are fine actually there's no you know prejudice or pressure to be any particular way but they do create structures to support one's own internal inquiry and call in mirrors and, and, you know, perspective from others to help triangulate, you know, as you're an unfolding being, you're not just one thing. Right. And so um, th what they found from that research was that the dominant culture is so ill-equipped to really understand, like, what is sexual energy, right? Because um, the structures that are kind of the legacy of, I don't know, call it, um, if, I mean, patriarchal, I still have a tr problem with that word. Like, I still think it's often trotted out kind of incorrectly in some places. But if we want to say, essentially, a culture which heavily um, commodifies and or dominates the feminine. Right. That's one way to think, say it. Um, at Tamara, they really understand that the only reason the masculine or men would do that is because of a deep uh, fear of how powerful feminine sexual energy actually is. Right. Right. And so it takes an uninitiated man to fear and to dominate that energy right? right rather than actually do the work to meet that energy which is what you know initiated culture would do and so we basically have 
women that are conditioned into fearing their own power as well and to be divorced from their own pleasure often, right? And we have men that are funneling in their, their ability to, you know, connect and to express or to um, experience eroticism into a very narrow spectrum, right? Mm -hmm. and, and often it's, yeah, say, I don't know, self-pleasure, I mean, often masturbation, you know, kind of quickly get it over with or, exactly. you know, because all the shame's still there. Or it's to, you know, get to the climax as quickly as possible or, you know, kind of collect a number of women lovers and, you know, call yourself a hero or whatever it is. Yeah, yes. it, but it's such a narrow band of what eroticism is, right? Because when you strip it all back, it's life energy, exactly. right? It's like, it's life's, you know, innate longing for more life. Right. And, you know, it doesn't originate in humans, but we get to participate in it. You know, what a beautiful gift. So my question for me and for Tamara was like, how do we actually create structures that allow for that beauty um, to radiate and to um, flow like water, right? Like an ecosystem where the water nourishes like all of life, not just, you know, this narrow band that funnels through and it becomes violent, which is often the case, right? We see sexual energy, we think, oh, it's violent. Exactly. Um, but that's because there's no proper mature outlets for it to just flow and to nourish. Mm. Oh, I love listening to you. <laughs> really, I really appreciate how you, yeah, you encapsulate it all and, and thank you for just, you know, threading these pieces together. I, I've, mm. I've, I've such a passion, Ian, around these topics, around death phobia, as you said, around our, our sexuality and, and this, mm. you know, for me, there's something so real in that beautiful you know cliche saying maybe but you know as um as within so without so mm -hmm. there's this feeling sometimes that even just yesterday morning just to let, bring you in on this is that i woke up feeling a sense of hopelessness and helplessness and sadness and mm -hmm. i was just feeling heavy in the bed and, and normally i wake up have my morning practice and you know i get out of bed and, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm an energized guy and i, I I've got the bigger picture playing out. I know I'm good, but with what's been going on mm. with the coronavirus and some of the, the, the depth of the, some of the crazy absurd stories I've been hearing, I haven't been getting too sucked into the, to the, you know, mm. the, 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 the media, but I've been choosing wisely who I've listened to and, and, and been absorbing. But, you know, there's been some of that feed coming in around, you know, some of the, uh, the potential ideas of what's going on around um, mm -hmm. mass control and you know some of these other limits of control mm -hmm. and some of the other agenda that sort of narrative to let's say sort of sideways sideways playing to the more beautiful world you know there's this other one of like yeah. the more destructive world if you want right it's like hey mm -hmm. which way which way are we going and and even as yeah. i say that i felt myself a little bit pulled and and anyway yesterday morning i was just feeling this i was just really feeling it actually it was just really there really mm -hmm. very very uh, heavy in my chest and I needed I couldn't cry fully but I needed to like release like my jaw was tight mm. I really needed to just like wail actually it was like wailing mm. it was like mm. it was like a, a cry that was coming more like a wail and, and I was laid actually in my partner's arms and we'd had to we'd mm. had some connection and I was just feeling in my head and and the reason why I bring this up with you is that there was that, that, that sense of like what Am I, is what I'm doing, you know, sharing this. You know, I, I have this mm. vision that if more and more people love themselves and face their face their wounds inside, through that we we create the you know the outer expression mm -hmm. of what's inner, right? Basically, that as within, so without. And yeah. and anyway, I went through that yesterday. I had a, a talk with a brother, which is always always amazing, just to like vent what's there, you know. I spoke yeah. with a, a brother, 
And so, yeah, I, I don't know. I just love you to, I'd love to hear your mm. perspective on that of like, I, I can't go out there. I definitely know by now from meditation and all of my practices that it's not about just going out there. But at the same time, mm. I'm in this physical realm and I want to I want to do my work here. And I know that there's this like there's this wounding inside of me. And and but then at the same time, I see this sort of collective wound. And when I look at some, I'm just going to say this outright. When I look at some of the politicians and some of these people in power, I don't know about mm. you, Ian. And this is this is I want this to be an observation, not a judgment. But I see wounded boys. I see, mm -hmm. like, I see, when, really, when, yeah. I, when I look at them, I don't see men in suits. I see these little boys. And, and I feel like sometimes, oh, I'd love to give them a hug and take mm -hmm. them into retreat and do some process work with them, right? So, I don't know, mm -hmm. that, that's just been alive in me the last few days. Mm -hmm. Yeah, beautiful. Thank you. Mm, that's such a powerful uh, expression of compassion, though, that what you said, you know, that because it's so easy to other them. Right. And, and say, oh, these terrible men and they're just evil and we got to get rid of them. And, right. You know, but but the, the capacity to see them also as like the wounded boy is actually for me, that's an achievement. Hmm. Right. And I would say that that's also the heart of what a lot of um, this work is. Again, like, I mean, you know, they say that Thich Han, I'm sure, and, and Dalai Lama and all these guys, you know, they're all about, you know, compassion is my religion and all this. And to me, that's a big piece of it, of course. But it's also not sort of excusing behaviors and saying, well, you know, they, they just did that because they're wounded, but it's right. also saying, and, and, you know, no more, you can't do that anymore. Or, right. you know, we got to rise up. So I see there's that parallel, certainly. Yes. But hearing what you're sharing too around, you know, the, the emotion that came up and, and what I hear is almost like a sense too of, you know, personal, I don't know, need to, to feel like, is it worth it? Mm. You know? Yeah. Is, is what I'm doing worth it? Like, does it, does it matter? Is it going to change anything? Like, you know, and, and I feel that too, some days, like hundred percent, you know, it's, and it's, I think it's good to allow that mm. in like, because otherwise you almost have this, um, kind of like mania for it has to, I have to know if it's going to work out, mm. you know, and, and that kind of, it, it doesn't let in the room, these other emotions, which are actually really important. Um, so that's one, the Beautiful. other piece is, yeah, this thing with Steven that I really appreciate, you know, that he's brought is his ability to basically say, you know, like so many times at the deathbed that he, he, you know, he sat with others and, you know, he often said that people would want a miracle, right? They'd say something's something can be done, you know, like somebody with a terminal diagnosis and they'd say something, something must be done. Uh, it's possible, right? And he said, you know, this mania showed up so many times with the doctors because the whole medical system generally wants, you know, it's like, yeah, okay, we'll try this, we'll try that, try that. And, you know, sometimes things can work. Yeah, sure. But a lot of the times, you know, they don't and, and the people die. And there's something to recognize that, you know, a lot of the language that we hear around uh, death and particularly if there's like, a, you know, an illness or something like that, they'll say, you know, they lost their fight to this, you know, cancer, for example, mm, yes. you know, after a long, after a long battle, Struggle, you know, yes. they lost, yeah, they lost their fight. And there's something so... Um, I don't know, intolerant about that language, right? And, and Charles Eisenstein calls that war thinking, right? Which is this idea that death fundamentally is a flaw in the design of the universe. And, you know, it's a, it's a tragedy and a, it's a loss. You know, all this language, right? Is all that essentially death is losing. Right. Right. And that's very telling that, that that's how we understand often how we speak about and how we look about death, right? Because, you know, there's no other option basically for all of us, right? So, 
Imagine that. Imagine something that all of us go through and the culture conditioning tells us that it's losing, that you know you failed. You failed to live forever, exactly. which is an outrageous proposition, right? Yes. Um, and so many others, and is, I'll re- link it back to the podcast now too, because Martin Shaw, another beautiful myth teller, Please. Um, you know, he spoke about this idea that you know, coronavirus really for him was about encountering the goddess of limit. Right? This idea that you know, modern culture by and large thinks it's you know, heroically should you know, trudge on forever and do what it wants and da da da, which is a very adolescent understanding about what you know, humans are here for. And so I guess what I'm saying is, you know, we're at a point now where the future is is uncertain, and you know the just say the diagnosis, or like Steve would say, the rate of change is growing, right? And that was a much more um, faithful rendering of how to understand when death was coming, was you know how fast are changes happening, right? Right? And I would I would actually argue that that is what's something that's speeding up, right? You know, I remember seeing a meme a few months ago. I think it was pre-coronavirus even, where it was like uh, you know waking up every day was like being on Starship Enterprise and, you know, Jean-Luc Picard was like, damage report. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Because every day, every day something other crazy, right, coming in. What what will it be today? Let's uh, let's find out what's happened. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, it's crazy making for sure. And at the same time, I guess what I'm left with is um, this sense that, now again, this sounds, it sounds challenging to hear when, you only have two options. And Steve, he, he really articulates this well, which he says, you know, um, oftentimes we're basically told to choose between you can have hope or things are hopeless. Right. Right. They'll say, well, you got to have hope because if you don't have hope, it's hopeless. And that's what I mean by that mania. The mania says you have to be hopeful to continue. And he's been able to demonstrate to me that uh, it is possible to be hope free meaning hope is not required to continue doing the things that feel worth doing wow say that again i love that (laughs) that that hope is not required in order to do the things that are actually worth doing for you exactly yes yeah and in fact hope the idea that things will work out um actually could be the thing that's in the way of you actually doing the things that need doing oh i love that right yes exactly that's yeah, a whole so that's are, like that's got my that's yeah. my mind my <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah and so many people right they're basically waiting for normal to come back yes uh or or even their idea of what they think normal could be and you know and then they're they're not doing the things that actually need doing right because they're like well you know i still need to save for a house or you know like well what about my retirement fund or you know and like for so many i, I mean I, that seems like a bizarre attachment that there's going to be a thing even called retirement in the future. Exactly. You know, and I'm not even, and I'm not even being apocalyptic. I'm just actually being like, come on, can't we have more imagination than that? Yeah. You know, really? Because coronavirus to me too, is this like injection of what's possible, what could be possible. And, yeah, um, there was a great piece that came out, which was like, like you know, no, no longer can world leaders pretend like they can't do anything around climate change. Right. Like all of this, all of the activists and, you know, every advocates were saying, you know, we got to limit flying or we got to like cut back on, you know, CO2 emissions. And they were like, well, you know, we can't the economy and, you know, like, but people love flying and, and da, 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 you know, and then coronavirus comes along and says, really, you can't do anything, you know? So now yeah. it's like the jigs up, you know, like hum- the rest of us can say, come on now, like, stop lying. You can change things, you know, extinction rebellion. They're like, come on now, you can do these things. And uh, if enough people are willing to not forget that it is possible, 
Right. You know, that we basically can choose to do almost anything. Right. And I say that in the sense of we can change the systems how we want. If enough people are willing to say and remember that we can do that, it'll happen. Mm. Thank you for that. that that's a beautiful, mm. a beautiful reframe from Steve and yourself. And, and also, I mean, the, one of the things that pops up initially is this idea that and I, I know I'm, I'm mindful of, of the time because there's so much, you know, we, we haven't even dived fully into the, the men's work you're doing at the moment. But as I said, this, this might be just part one of a, of a continuation because I don't, mm-hmm. don't want to rush. I don't want to rush things. I like them to emerge. And at the same mm-hmm. time, you know, I know that there's a, a, something pops in my head and says, ah, but we, we seem to, Ian, give so much power over to other people to make these decisions mm-hmm. as opposed to us realizing that we as people, as a collective, as, as, as this invitation to be sovereign, to step into our power and almost invite these people that we give power as advisors, you know, to do stuff, but not always, mm-hmm. you know, sit back underneath the, the or, or lower than you know, there's that beautiful saying is standing under the power and going, OK, yeah, what do I have to do? Where should I be? And it just felt like as you spoke, this feels such a great possibility and potential of that. And I love the words you use. Can we be more imaginative than this? Right. But at the same mm-hmm. time, I feel that the system as we knew it, right, let's say, was so numbing and and suppressing of the imagination because that keeps us in fear and keeps us in lack and scarcity and separation anyway. Right. So mm-hmm. I don't know what pops up yeah. from there. Yeah, actually, you know, it's funny. Um, what came, what comes to me is uh, Batman and Joker. <laughs> <laughs> Go on. Uh, surprisingly, but um, you know, because I was pondering around this idea of, you know, what is it about these characters that is so compelling? You know, over and over, we get tr- different treatments of these two, and um, you know, uh, I, I'm sure I'm not the first to wonder about this, but um, if you think of them as this dance or this um, kind of a, a battle between chaos which is joker and order which is batman that there's this constant um archetypal dance between uh this need for control and order and this longing for chaos Mm. and the dance unfolds when like for example if order becomes too oppressive then chaos is or could be uh like a, a a medicine right a bomb but if chaos is too rampant then order is what's needed, right? Mm-hmm. So there's this kind of um, necessary balancing between the two. And I would say largely that, you know, um, a lot of the cons- you know, quote, conspiracy theories around, you know, I don't know, a shadowy cabal at the top that are pulling the strings and have all this under control really gives a lot of credit to those people, actually. You know, it really s- kind of like puts forth that they must be as sophisticated as, you know, 18 level Jedi, you know, black belts, or I don't know, whatever. Right. Um, and, and I just don't think they're actually that intelligent. Like, or that con- I don't think they actually have that much control as we might think they do. And, you know, Charles speaks about this a lot in his work. Because I think it's more likely that they are also bound by, essentially, uh, the momentum of the structures of control that, right. you know, have been trundling along for a long time now. And so even people that get in power, they're kind of like, whoa, can I move, you know, this lever? And it's like, no, you can't actually because it's so entrenched. And so um, chaos, uh, e, you know, we can think of COVID in this moment, um, creates the possibility for more imagination, right? I mean, yeah, not it, to dissuade like any opens, of the... Co- it, no, it gives the opportunity to yeah. open that doorway. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And not to, again, um, dismiss any of the deep hardship and the deaths and all that stuff. It's not, I'm not saying that's why it happened, which because, hey, life wanted more imagination, so it decided. Yeah, exactly. Um, 
but but it is a question too of like so what do we do with this moment you know what most serves and so that's i guess why i'm saying that i do feel the um this need to yeah to be bold you know and also to recognize that you know this idea of taking our power back or kind of stepping into our sovereignty it, it, it is important to recognize how deep the conditioning that we all of us carry in this culture to look to authority, right. right? To look to parental authority in particular. So why is that? And I believe this is part of what Tamara's understood, that, you know, if you grew up in a culture of the nuclear family, um, i.e. also often like a patriarchal culture where God is the father, right? Which is um, what, you know, Christianity and the Abrahamic religions are then you have an inner structure which actually gives your power away and looks to the parental authority for uh, guidance. And like Trump is a perfect example, right? So he plays out the strong father for so many. And it's kind of like, many people are actually like, oh my God, thank you, because they're in fear, they're in uncertainty, right? And they look to a parental figure to be their dad, mm-hmm. right? And that's, you know, no matter, Obama, you know, same thing. Um, so it takes actually a heroic effort to, kind of like work through the inner structures of oneself to be able to find inner sovereignty also with other people who've actually you know done that work and for me rites of passage is what i understand was the core function of that oh wow right i like love this this is, we- this is weaving yeah. right round into the initiation <laughs> and the go 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 continue yeah. continue yeah, yeah, yeah. so for me like, like this, this is what i've come to understand with the research now um, into initiation and rites of passage is that a key piece of it was exactly this, you know, to deconstruct an egoic idea of the self where you are the center of the universe, right? Which is very much a, a child understanding. Um, and it's totally normal. A child, you know, I see my son, you know, bopping around and he's like, you know, he's the only <laughs> game in town, right? <laughs> and, totally. And, and that's okay because a kid is learning and their whole consciousness is, is kind of like, you know, they're, they're learning how to be a, a, a self, a being. But then at a certain point, you know, real cultures understand that that's dangerous. Like after a certain point, the idea that you're the center of the universe is dangerous to the rest of the village and to the rest of life. And so they crafted these very beautiful and elaborate village, you know, making uh, thresholds and rituals to create that kind of like severance of this egoic, you know, self-consciousness that a child has and kind of reconstruct it often through an encounter with the wild where they would then be welcomed back and their whole inner structure would be now uh, oriented towards you know, the village and towards serving life. Mm-hmm. So they recognize that they themselves are not, you know, they're not the only game in town actually anymore. That doesn't mean they're nothing, right? But it means that there's just a much bigger story out there. And so I myself have been a four year cycle uh, through this you know, wilderness vigil is another way to put it. Uh, and I've done two years and I can say that it has been yeah, profound um, kind of confrontation of all of the ways in which I still believe I'm the center of the universe. Oh, well, well, so so just, just just pause there for s- slightly. So you mean in the last two years or four years you've been going, you've been like on like vision quest you mean or you've been going into nature? What? Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I mean that's, uh, it, it, you know, it's known by a few different names but yeah. essentially, yeah, like the wilderness vigil as well it kind of takes a little more of the grandiosity out of it. Okay. You know, like the quests or the visions, yeah, you know, because, yeah. you know, you may not get visions or you may not be questing. But <laughs> right. Uh, but wilderness vigil is, you know, you're out in the wild for a period of time, no okay. food, no water, and the whole thing. And, you know, you, you encounter exactly that. You encounter the big story. That's the one way I'd put it. You, you, you slow down enough to um, perceive nature, you know, I put that in quotations, to perceive nature because we move so fast all the time, right? Like most people, they, you know, like life to life, we are this blurry 
rapacious being, you know, that, uh, that, you know, to imagine to a tree how fast humans are moving. Wow. You know, when, when their consciousness is likely utterly, you know, different timelines. And, but imagine this though, imagine you're, you're just kind of being a tree amongst all your friends in this gorgeous, you know, eco forest that you've, you know, known your whole life. And in a moment, it's all gone. And you know, suddenly it's a banana plantation or sugarcane or can you like can you imagine the the yeah. distress yeah. and the grief that you would feel? The grief and all of a sudden, yeah, right? And it's it's that it's moving that quickly to them. That's what I guess I'm saying, you know. Because to humans, we're kind of like you know we're in our own you know time warp of how we perceive reality, but lots of beings obviously likely perceive it differently. So anyway, going back to the threshold, Martin Shaw has a really great piece in the episode we did where he said. You know, people go often to the to the wilderness vigil to, you know, find themselves more or to bring back the boon, you know, for the village. And that's often how it's characterized. But he says, actually, what happens if it's, you know, done well, is that uh, you get eaten by the wild. And, you know, we're not talking about a bear wandering in and, you know, taking care of you. But but everything you thought you were gets eaten. And what's on the other side of that is the new story. Beautiful. Wow, I got tingles up my whole arms. Mm. And when I get the tingle, I call them the tingles of truth, but I, I'm hearing mm. and feeling, you know, that again, that call to, to die, actually. I love this word, um, I, yeah. I, I love this word um, death, and it's some, a topic mm. I speak about a lot. It's one, why I've been so inspired by uh, this uh, death phobia that Stephen talks about and so on, yeah. is that I totally see, like even at the moment, coronavirus has been that for me it's been like this invitation of deaf awareness mm-hmm. to really look mm-hmm. at what structures within ourselves need to be faced and with that light of awareness we need to almost yeah. face face the death of those and, and i mean charles's yeah. work your work all of it is constantly asking me to die to my beliefs to die to my conditioning die to the the false aspects of what i thought reality to be and mm-hmm. and actually mm-hmm. in that facing death even meditation has always invited me into that you know dying to the the, mm. the false yeah. ego and so on and so forth and i just yeah. love that you've you've brought it round again because you know i said today that we want to also speak and i feel that you've brought it round around men's work but i want i want you to just die i want to ask you this because um i know you've referenced your a podcast a few times and i love that not the podcast but the people that you've spoken to and, and mm-hmm. martin shaw is one of the the uh, the guys I want to listen to actually. Um, mm-hmm. Now, I I will share with everybody listening a link to to your podcast. But I want to just you to finish today maybe on. Yeah. Ha- why you feel it's really important because we could talk about so much you just shared, but I'm just going to let the listeners just enjoy yeah. that and relish in that and savor what's just come uh, mm. through you today. Sure. And. Yeah, why it's really important, because I have my views on this, of why we as brothers, like this call for me is, this is brotherhood for me. Like listening to mm. you and being with you. And I know we've, you know, spoken a few times and we've just had some small exchanges, but I have a mm. real, I have, I don't know, I have such a respect for you, but I have such a, mm. uh, yeah, maybe a, a brotherly, a brotherly love for you. You know, it's like somebody mm. who I trust okay. and I look up to. And it's like, you know, it's like somebody who's given me support, even though it's been from afar. So I'd love mm. to, I'd love your views just to close today's uh, talk on you know, why it's important for us as brothers to really come together. Mm. Does that yeah. feel, does that mm. feel okay as yeah. a closing? Yeah, beautiful question. Mm. Mm. Yeah, what comes to me is that 
you know, it's important to look at the context of, of you know, quote, men's work, you know, and, and not, you know, I could really go on this for a while, but um, one piece I want to say is that I track what, what became to under, be understood as the mythopoetic men's movement, right, which started with Robert Bly, James Hillman, Michael Mead, um, kind of in the late 80s, early 90s, you know, the book Iron John was a big one. And um, at the same time, on the woman's side, it was uh, Women Who Run With Wolves, right, by Clarissa Pinkola's and um, Marion Woodman and these other, you know, archetypal Jungian uh, scholars and storytellers that Martin Shaw talks about this, really set up the 90s as that myth, the relationship to myth and gender, right? Like, which is not necessarily the only ways where where myth shows up or can be useful, right? But that's really what was set up. And I really appreciated that. And, and it went kind of underground, I feel, um, largely. And I was confirmed by some of the people I spoke to. And more recently now, I feel this resurgence, right, of this men's work and and particularly the mythopoetic wave. And partly what I've tried to do is connect the generations and be like, look, you know, they figured out some things and certain things actually didn't work that well. And, you know, can we learn from each other, you know, intergenerationally? Um, and the Sacred Sons experience I had, of which I wrote a piece about, you know, I, I do touch I on this as piece, well. I love that piece, yes. Yeah, thank you. Um, and so what I'd say is that, you know, there's a bit of a throwdown um, on the, the woman's side to men. Uh, you know, and the throwdown is sort of this, you know, they got their work to do. And I would I would argue that in a village culture, that would be how it is, right? That, um, and I know it's hard to sometimes talk about these things because it feels, again, like heteronormative and non-inclusive of the variety of genders that is now, you know, proliferated. And, and in some ways, I, I do think that's true. We are in a new chapter where how do we create the right spaces, you know, for, for the distinct genders? Um, and I think it's possible to do so. Um, but let's just say that, you know, in a, in a traditional village understanding that there was women's work, you know, women's um, experiences, women's stories, uh, women's magic and mystery, you know, just as there was with men. We're in a time now in the modern culture, though, where like we don't really have distinct peoples anymore, you know, particularly in North America. But, I'm, you know, I think a lot of the you know, ancestral lineages, right, have blurred or blended or less distinct. And these real ties to place um, have been in most places, you know, largely um, lost. Right. Mm -hmm. And so we're kind of like that's the setting of which we're, we're kind of lunging towards so many men. Essentially, what I would call wh where's the cloak often of personal growth and like self-development, you know, that that's kind of what the, the pitch is for often, you know. And, and you know, I, I, I cringe a little bit when I hear things like up level your masculinity, you know, this kind of stuff. Right. Um, but sometimes it gets men in the door, right, for, for others. And in that sense, I think um, this is what Sacred Sons, I think, articulated beautifully, though, is that, you know, they say brotherhood is the medicine, right? So beyond the, you know, the practices and the techniques and, you know, this and that, it's like just being together with other men right. is the medicine, you know? And, and in that sense, it also awakens, I think, like an ancestral memory of like, oh, yeah, you know, there was the time when men would just gather, and in particular, intergenerationally, and they would sit around the fire and they would just, you know, tell stories and there would be an in a transmission of a way and being which, you know, held a lot of the, I don't know, call it the, the coping at bay. You know, because a lot of men, you know, they have loneliness, depression, substance abuse, all these things, right? I would call their coping strategies right. for finding, I think, a real place of, of belonging, you know, yeah. of uh, finding a place to be seen, you know, to be cherished. And often women you know, bless them, try to be that, you know, to their men, let's say, if it's, we're talking about heterosexual, but even other men too, yeah. you know, they try to find those places in, even in, even in a partnership, you know, like a single, you know, unique partnership. 
And I would just say that I've found through all my experiences now that that is not enough. Like it's too much to load on a partnership, mm. you know, to be all those things. Yeah, and makes so, sense. you know, so let that longing actually become the, you know, the fuel and the willingness to recraft culture again, you know, real culture. And particularly among men, there is a particular alchemy that can happen, I believe, only among men. You know, and so much of my own experiences, it's like I had to be among men before I even knew all of the like programming I was running, you know, the presence of women and all the places in which I just, I was like, wow, I didn't know I needed this, you know? And a lot of men say that. They're like, you know, I didn't, what? I thought it'd be weird, but all of a sudden something clicks and they're like, oh my God, this is amazing. So, you know what I mean? There's a certain kind of innate, um, yeah, alchemy, medicine, all the rest that just happens, you know, when we gather in those spaces. And so I think that's above any, uh, you know, ideas about what you're going to get out of it or blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? It's like, but that is something that I think life is asking of us. I love that. I really love that. It's, a, it's, it's funny. I went to a, a, little, a little men's circle um, a few weeks ago here in Bali. And actually, that was, that was one of the things that uh, a, a guy, a brother, Antosh, res responded. He said, wow, just sitting around this fire with you guys. He, he, he was like, that's enough. Because I can't remember mm -hmm. when I've just been around a fire with five guys just, you know, yeah. talking about a few things that popped up. There was no real agenda or any you know, set thing. Mm -hmm. We put a fire on in the middle and we sat around and we had a few conversations. I instigated just because I didn't know everybody. I instigated just everybody yeah. sharing a few words about themselves. And, and that was it, yeah. you know. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't take much. No. You know? Yeah. So beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Really beautiful. Um, OK. I just, you know, this is this is where we are. I feel that's a beautiful place, place to close mm. uh, for today. Mm -hmm. But I, I know you said you can uh, wax lyrical a bit more on that. And I feel that uh, mm -hmm. maybe later in the year, I'd love to, um, I really love to dive into you a bit more around the men's work and, and, just, yeah. and just your journey as a, as a father and, and as a brother. That would be amazing. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And yeah, there's nothing else to say other than thank you so much. Is there any passing words you'd like to share to, to anybody maybe listening today? Or, I mean, I'm obviously going to share all your links everywhere, but I don't mean like a promotion, yeah. but is there anything based on this conversation today that you feel to just summarize? Mm. Yeah. Hmm. I guess I'd want to leave the listeners with like encouragement to, to listen to that deeper voice, you know, that's actually saying, hey, you know, because I often return to that question, like what's mine to do? You know, like there's, there's, there's many things that could be done and it, only each person I think can find that thing that's theirs to do. And for me, you know, more recently, you know, it was the podcast, the, the Mythic Masculine, because I don't know why, you know, I couldn't justify it for a lot of reasons, but I just felt like it was mine to do. And I've just been following that, um, that intuition. And so I really want to ask people to, you know, if they don't have the voice there to take the time out of their regular patterns and court it, you know, like really give themselves the space and the silence to allow it to come, because I do think that life is trying to get a hold of us. Like life is trying to communicate with us and say, hey, like this is yours to do, you know, and the sooner that we do that, the sooner like the unfolding, you know, of life's intelligence through us will begin to happen quicker, you know, because we were willing to take the courageous step and say, OK, you know, I'm, I'm ready for, you know, duty. I'm showing up. Ian, you are a breath mm. of fresh air to me and you've mm. been a great support to me. I've told you this many times and just today this conversation is enriching. 
It's uh, mm. nourishing and I feel really uh, expanded from being with you today. Mm. So I hope, the I hope the listeners feel the same way. And I just want to say thank you so much for taking some time again out of your schedule to mm. be with us. Mm. And have a, have a beautiful, yeah. beautiful day. Mm. Simon, yeah, thank you. And to say, you know, this, this wouldn't happen without you on the other side. So, yeah, thanks for, you know, being the other half. Mm. Beautiful. Okay, there you go, everybody. I'm going to end this one now. Have a beautiful time. Enjoy this conversation. Please explore a little bit more of Ian's work and offering to the world. And yeah, you, you've got it all. You've had it all here. This is Simon Transparently. Have a beautiful day, life, evening, wherever you are on the planet. <laughs> this is our time to rise.